Good morning, and welcome to episode 386 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from BaseballProspectus.com. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined by Sam Miller. Hey. Uh, hello. We are taking a break from our team preview podcast to do our usual Friday listener email show. Today is a little different uh, in that while you were otherwise occupied today, I spoke to... To Ricky Smith, uh, who is a, a comedian and and writer, uh, and told me a story about losing his date to Derek Jeter, which he told on Twitter first, and uh, then told in entertaining fashion to me. Uh, so you can listen to that after our questions and answers about baseball. So if you want to skip to that, you can find the timestamp in the episode summary somewhere. Otherwise, I have some some questions about baseball that we can answer. I have some questions about your interest in Derek Jeter's <laughs> dating life. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I can't confirm the story, but I, I enjoy it nonetheless. Um, okay, uh, so this question comes. We got some good ones this good ones this week. Uh, this one comes from Coleman from Southampton. In the United Kingdom, uh, the following question occurred to me after AJ Burnett signed a one-year, sixteen million dollar deal with the Phillies today. If a pitcher was projected to post a 3.5 ERA while pitching 200 innings, he could probably command a similar number to Burnett on a one-year deal. If, however, mm-hmm. all 30 teams were given a crystal ball-based guarantee that he would achieve those numbers, how much would the amount change by? Let's assume the pitcher is old like Burnett and will only accept a one-year deal. While the risk of injury and poor performance is eliminated, so is the potential for a truly great season. I assume that teams would value certainty, but how much of a salary bump would it lead to, and would there be a difference in percentage increase between pitchers and hitters? Um, I have an answer. Do you have an answer? Can I just first say that I wish that I had um, been at Prospectus when A.J. Burnett signed with the Blue Jays because it, it just occurred to me what a great transaction analysis headline AJAJ would have been. <laughs> yeah, that's a shame. Uh, I have an answer. Do you have an answer? Uh, yeah. I'm going to move my chair first. Hang on. I want to okay. move my chair. Go ahead. It's it's later than usual, so I'm more paranoid than usual about waking mm-hmm. up family. So now I'm going to be talking away from their bedrooms. Mm-hmm. Seems, uh, seems smart. Okay, so what's your answer? Wait a minute. You haven't said whether you have an answer. I, I don't want an you to piggyback off my answer. I have an answer. You swear? Yes. All right. Uh, I think his salary goes down. What's your answer? Huh. Uh, I think up. Yeah. I think you're wrong. Okay. And I believe I will convince you of this. Okay. Uh, from a, the, the, the most basic level, the reason I initially thought it would go uh, would go down is that I figure that uh, GMs um, uh, are all expecting the players they sign to do particularly well. Like the, 
not just because they signed him, but um, because it's more exciting to think that way. Like as soon as you, you know, the, uh, you know, the, I forget, I forget what the name of it is, but the effect where if you have, um, like if you're, if you spend days and days trying to decide what car to buy and like two cars, you know, like a Jetta and a Civic seem totally identical to you and you just can't make up your mind. And then finally you make up your mind the next day you forgot that you had any doubt and you're telling everybody how the Jetta is the best car in the world. And Mm -hmm. you you're in making the decision you you become extremely certain about it mm-hmm. i just feel like uh gms probably all think that the players that they're signing are 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 upside they sign them because they think that they have all this extra upside um, and if you take away the excitement of the upside i know that i know that the certainty of it is very attractive too um, and i know that there's a fear that everybody they sign is going to turn out to be uh broken but I believe that the, the effect of uh, wanting upside would be greater. But, but that's that's just sort of some weird feeling I have. I think the true answer to this, the logical answer, the factual answer that you can't dispute, is that um, the team that signs a player is the one that thinks the most highly of him. And mm. so you can have 29 teams that think he's going to do worse than the 30th does, um, but you only need the one team that thinks he's going to do better. And so if all teams knew that he was going to do exactly that, then there would be no 30th team that overrates him. Mm. Indisputable, Ben. It's indisputable. You cannot dispute this. Uh, I think I can. Um, Go for it. Well, I don't know whether Burnett actually ended up with the highest bidder. In his case, it doesn't seem that way, or it it doesn't seem as if the Phillies are necessarily the team that thinks he will be better than every other team thinks he'll be. Um, it seems like like geography played a part, probably. Um, mm, yeah, I think you're getting... I, I don't think that's the spirit of the question. Uh, okay, but I... I think the fact that Coleman specified that it is an old pitcher um, makes me think that even the most optimistic team... Uh, would not be so high on him that they wouldn't, you know, that it wouldn't, that it would think that he is definitely as valuable as a 200 inning pitcher with a three and a half ERA. I think with a with a pitcher, I, I mean, I, I think every team factors in the uncertainty uh, or the the injury risk likelihood pretty highly and he asked whether there'd be a difference in percentage increase between pitchers and hitters i think there would be certainly that uh that pitchers would would benefit from this more because there is more uncertainty about pitchers staying healthy um i think i think that certainty uh i think you're underrating that the value of that certainty but and, doesn't the doesn't yeah. the question doesn't the question presume that I mean three point five zero ERA in two hundred innings or or whatever he said that I feel like the way the question is asked presumes that that is his his mean uh, projection that yeah that he is as likely to be you know that that if you average all of his possible performances together that's what he's going to be right so uh, the upside and the downside is already baked into that and so that you know that's that is his estimated average performance and i feel like if you ask all 30 gms though to project that pitcher whether it's aj burnett or, or just an abstract pitcher you're going to have a lot more range and it's the team that uh 
that fancies him better than that that is going to sign him or that convinces themselves that they see upside that is going to sign him. And so if you take away that possibility, if you take away the, you know, the, the disagreement about it, then uh, who's, where's, who's going who's to be the winner's cursor? I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think 200 innings can be the mean. It does the, I, do you feel that the question though, that the spirit of the question presupposes that? Uh, I don't know. I think it's, I think it changes the answer for that to be possible or not. I don't think it's possible to have a pitcher. I think that. I think that you and I are answering different questions. <laughs> <laughs> that could be. Um, so we've each given our answer, though. I feel like anybody mm-hmm. who's listening and wants our perspective on this has a pretty good feeling about where we stand. Yeah. Okay. Then we can move on. <clears throat> okay. Successful. That was a successful email exchange. Partial. Partial. Um, all right. Uh, this one... Let's see. Eric Hartman asks, uh, would it be pedantic to state more clearly that every single prospect's floor and many prospects realistic floor is not a big leaguer? I feel in the Mm. prospecting world, echo chamber, the idea that most true prospects will be big leaguers is overstated. Your thoughts? That's a good point. Yes. Um, uh, Yeah, I guess it depends how much credit you want to give to the reader. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's what that's what generally that that's where uh, pedantry comes in is that you don't give you know the speaker credit for sort of common sense and you have to you know poke at the uh, at the at the at the small details even though the the meaning is fairly clear. Um, I think that probably the reader understands that there's uh, there is a floor that is dark and tragic and goes to high A and, and no further. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that Eric's point is correct, that maybe there is a tendency to overstate the worst case, uh, which brings up actually a question that we had last week where Dan Brooks asked if, um, what, what did Dan Brooks ask if prospect writers should regress to the mean more when they're mm-hmm. stating the best case? And somebody brought up a good point, which is that um, that um, the prospects that we talk about are not actually like the median prospects. They're they're the top prospects. We're only really talking about the top prospects. And if you actually had a prospect writer describe all of the prospects in minor league baseball, all six thousand minor leaguers, you would actually have a lot. You know, it it might actually be a pretty good distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wanted to bring that up. But yeah, I think that. Eric is right, but it's probably not important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's probably right. When, when Jason Parks passed on that thing that I think it was a, a scout or someone said about Buxton that that his floor is Tory Hunter, um, and that's a really valuable player, and that suggests that there is no possible way that he is not going to be a really valuable player, and we all understand that something could happen. He could contract an illness and not reach that floor. I mean, you know, he, right. But, but that's, I I guess, not that useful to us. We want to know what his, his skill level projects to be reasonably. 
And that's sort of what the prospect writer is trying to capture with the floor idea. Um, mm-hmm. There have yeah, certainly been instances where a prospect writer will say that someone has a floor of something and that person doesn't reach that floor, which contradicts the idea of a floor. Um, but Phil, I think philosophically, the floor and the ceiling are both, in a sense, best case scenarios. They're both yeah. They're both ceilings. It's like, what is the ceiling of his floor and what is the ceiling of his ceiling? Yes. Um, and I'm okay with that because... Mm-hmm. I, I think I maybe like that. I think it would be... T- I mean, really, what would be the point otherwise? Every player's floor would be identical. Right. And that would be no fun. Can we go back to the first question for a second? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm really uh, captivated by this question. So uh, AJ Burnett's actual projection this year is 165 innings, 385 ERA. So ignore the $16 million. Ignore the, the contract he actually signed. If there was a pitcher who was projected to 165 innings and 3.85 ERA. Mm-hmm. Do you think that a team would sign him for more or less? Would his contract be higher or lower if instead of the mean projection, that was the only projection for him? Uh, in that case, I, I guess I could buy your argument. Sort of makes sense to me. You sound... Totally convinced. <laughs> um, yeah, not totally. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, All right. Fair enough. I think I think I'm. I, I accept your position. Mm-hmm. I accept your your concern. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, this one comes from Matthew. Reading about all the latest extensions for young players, a question arose. What would it take for the pendulum to swing and teams to start issuing long-term deals? Alternatively, what would it take for players to no longer want to lock themselves into these agreements? I realize that this is a very general question, but I'm curious to know your thoughts. You you wrote about this once, didn't you? Well, the incentives of, particularly with pre-arbitration cases, the incentives are just overwhelmingly in favor of these happening. The incentives for the player and for the team both coincide in such a way that makes these extensions make a lot of sense. It's like asking, what would it take? Basically, it's like saying, what would it take for the pendulum to swing and nobody carries health, life, or auto insurance anymore? Because that's essentially what it is. The teams are uh, absorbing the risk in order to um, you know, basically get a long-term gain on their money. So, um, I mean, the answer to that would be either the risk would have to get way too high or teams financial I mean if teams didn't have any money like if they just couldn't there are lots of cases where you would like to invest in something but you don't actually have the money to do it so it doesn't matter how good an investment it is if you can't you know if you can't marshal the resources to do it mm-hmm. then you can't do it so either teams would have to be so overextended on contracts that they couldn't even do these things that would save them money in the long run or something would have to happen in the game that would make players uh, too risky. So uh, you could, I, I don't know. I, of course, another, I guess a third option would be that the, uh, that the system would change, and so you wouldn't have the standard six years of club control, three years pre-arb and all that. I mean, if, if, if that got changed to a different system, then I, don't, I haven't thought how it would work out, but that would, would of course, change maybe some of the incentives. But um, what could happen to make young players riskier, Ben? 
I guess if they outlawed Tommy John surgery mm. as unnatural as an unnatural advantage, uh-huh. um, or if they, well, yeah, mm. yeah, I don't, I don't see that happening. No, uh, <laughs> if maybe if uh, I don't know, I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah, uh, but like. Uh, didn't didn't Dave I didn't I don't I don't think I can't remember I don't I think didn't Dave Cameron write something about the Freddie Freeman deal and how uh, it signified that these extensions are like catching up to market value yes <laughs> something like that uh-huh um, so um, you know if if players just started getting cocky you know what could happen is if if it became the norm for players to take out insurance contracts on their own careers, mm-hmm. um, or if they were, you know, the, that guy, or as someone else asked us about the uh, the company that is recruiting investors to, yeah, I give was, uh, I was give say that, yeah that, that football uh, the basketball player, uh, yeah, foot, football players, right, at people investing in their future earnings and giving them yeah, some yeah. amount of money up front. Yeah, so that could certainly do it. In fact, that that probably should happen. The club should not be in the, in the ideal world. The club should probably not be the one benefiting from this. It like the player and the club are uh, in in a sense in competition. I mean, one is management and one is is labor, and it does kind of seem weird that the uh, that there isn't a third party who uh, steps in to kind of take away some of the conflict of interests there. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, yeah, maybe that will happen. I could see that happening. I could see in 15 years that being the norm. Every player who's uh, a touted prospect has some sort of avenue for cost certainty that doesn't involve giving his club free labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's probably likely. Okay. Uh, Reason- reasonably likely. So that's the answer. Related question, Great question. from Josh, uh, who asks, with the news that the Angels are going to discuss a long-term contract with Mike Trout... I was wondering what you guys believe his agent should ask for in exchange for buying out his free agent years. Given Kershaw's AAV and the fact that position players are seen as more valuable than pitchers, given the disparity in games played, Trout's age, and the rate of inflation in baseball, would 35 to $40 million per season be a reasonable number for Craig Landis to ask for after Trout's Arbiers? And if so, would it make sense for the Angels to agree to that number? Uh, after his RB years, so like for years seven and eight. Yes, right. So he's um, quite a year away from arbitration. So uh, yeah, I mean, if I were Trout, if I were Trout at this point, I wouldn't take any discount other than you know a normal player would take years before. Like like you know how like Justin Verlander signed a contract a couple years before his free agency, but you know he was a grown up. He was he was no longer pre-arb. So there's always like a discount when you when you get an extension before you actually have the leverage. Um, cause the club is taking on some risk, but at this point, if I were trout, I would not sign any, any deal that sort of gave the classic young player discount for an extension. Mm-hmm. As, as far as I'm concerned, if I might trout, uh, there is almost no chance that I'm not going to have $15 million in, uh, 11 months and be rich for life. So mm-hmm. I don't think that he has, I don't think he has, uh, really very little certain uncertainty for his, you know, his wealth. So uh-huh. if I were him, I would just keep playing and take all the money. And uh, a non-discounted rate, you would have to figure, would 
I mean, you probably would have to start around 35, right? Because we're talking about four years from now Yeah, would be his first free agent year. And uh, he is the best player in baseball and he's young and he's a position player and all of those things. Um, Yeah, he might not be the best player in baseball at that point, but um, 35 million seems like a reasonable amount to expect the best player in baseball to get in mm -hmm. four years with inflation, maybe 40. Mm -hmm. And he's, uh, you know, he's clearly the best player. I mean, he's like two or three wins better than anybody else at this point. Mm hmm. Um, but I don't know. 40 seems a bit high. I would think 35. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, Andrew says, despite the fact that win loss record doesn't mean anything, do you think the fact that Tanaka was 24 and Oh, such a perfect round 1000 winning percentage had anything to do with either the hype of his arrival in the U S the perception of his skill set by fans or the perception of his skill set by teams and therefore the number of teams bidding and the price that they bid. I guess what I'm asking is, were he 24-1, and one, would it make a significant difference? Everything you read about his 2013 starts off by saying that he had a perfect 24-0 record or something to that effect. If he were 24-1, and one, would the hype be as great? Uh, I would say yes. It would be as great? Yes, I would say it would be exactly as great. I do too, and and I do mainly because I don't think the hype was out of hand for him. To, to me, the hype was actually quite restrained for mm -hmm. Tanaka, and um, I I am even though I know better, I feel somewhat emotionally moved by the twenty four and zero record, uh -huh. and yet um, you know it didn't get out of hand. I mean, nobody was nobody was really suggesting he was better than Darvish. He, it like sort of came up a little bit, but basically nobody said that. And you, most of what you heard is he's a number two um, or so. So, uh, yeah, I think that the hype, actually the hype earlier was a little bit more. But as teams started getting involved, like when it was just this abstract player who was going to be available, and so much of the analysis was by us, you know, people, mm -hmm. like, people like you or John Morosi or whatever, um, there was more focus on the 24 now, mm -hmm. but once teams got involved and started having to decide what to bid, and then some of the analysis was was um, uh, informed by what clubs were saying or or what was going on in the thought process, you sort of saw it drop off, I think, and um, expectations got a little bit more reasonable. So let me ask you this: if he'd gone 12 and 13, mm. then would it have been different? Uh, yeah. I think I think so. Just twenty four and twenty four and one. Right. If he had been twenty four and one, you still would have seen every article lead off with the fact that he was twenty four and one. They're both but, amazing records. So twenty four and one, yes. What about twenty one and three? <clears throat> uh, I would say no difference from the team interest level. Um, maybe a tiny difference in the media interest level. Yeah, I think that twenty two and two. No difference in the media level. <laughs> 20, 20 and four, definite difference in the media level. Uh -huh. Twenty one and three, I I could go either way. But so twelve and thirteen, uh, difference in the team level, uh, difference on the team level. I'll say yes. I think I, so too. Yeah. And I think that I don't know whether nobody, nobody the would max admit bid it. would be much different. Maybe it would it, be I think it would be subconscious, uh -huh. but it would it would. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Josh says. Uh, listening to episode 381 currently, and it reminded me of a theoretical question I had a couple of years ago while at a very empty PNC park. 
If you have a league average team that would under normal circumstances finish 500, but you auctioned off the opportunity for a fan to manage the team for a single game and did this for all 162 games of the season, what would the team's record be at the end of the year? That's interesting because, um, uh, so we generally agree that a manager has, um, you know, some important role in, in keeping the team, you know, in, in doing managerial things behind the scenes, not just pulling mm-hmm. the strings. So in this question, is it assumed that there is no authority figure in the clubhouse? Right. Um, yeah, I'm, I would I would presume that it is it's a fan pulling the strings, making the in-game tactical decisions, but there would still be some someone uh, keeping order in between games and and ensuring some sort of consistency. And uh, I would expect a, uh, a lot of resentment from the players. Would you expect mm-hmm. some resentment? I think so. Uh, particularly if a play, I mean, you know, pulling a pitcher, right. for instance, y- you know, you want to be the, the accountant who goes out and pulls John Lackey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there, I would imagine that there would be a lot of, a lot of be, uh, of being pissed off about playing time, about relievers, how they were used, mm-hmm. um, about players being pinch hit for, about, you know, veterans who don't feel like they should be platooned, all those sorts of things. And so the question is, how how dysfunctional could a team, how how much damage could a team's dysfunction on those lines get? Mm-hmm. Um, from a from a strategic standpoint, I would bet j- just strategic. If it were just if, even if the players had no idea this was happening, um, and so a fan, you know, a, a, an auctioner, a, a bidder, uh, mm-hmm. was pulling the strings, but but nobody knew. Uh, I would say. Uh, I would say, I want to say four wins. Hmm. I would, I'd go higher. Yeah, I could go higher. I'd go higher. Um, I could go higher, but then I'm imagining Tom Tango doing a post and showing <laughs> that it would only be one and a half and, and the math would all make sense. Yeah, I did. Cause, like, cause how many decisions, how many truly difficult decisions there are? I did an uh, article many, are there, but... a few years ago or a couple years ago where I, I surveyed front office people and I asked them what they thought the difference between an average manager and a completely optimal makes every correct decision. Uh, what, what the difference in, in wins over a full season would be. And the average response was three wins. And did that include? So that was just from the X's and O's. Yes. Um, so right. So it was the, assuming assuming the same leadership and charisma and all that. Uh, yeah. The difference between an average manager and a totally optimal in-game manager was three wins. Um, I I think it would be high because uh, I mean even if the auctioneer ensured somehow that that the winner of the auction were was acting in good faith. That there there were no trolls who mm-hmm. won the bidding and and you know started a reliever and put a terrible lineup in the field. Everyone is trying to win and everyone knows a decent amount about baseball. Uh, I think the fact that no no fan gets to do this for more than one game in a row that it's a different person every day. Yeah, I think I think there'd be a huge adjustment even in terms of making the routine move. Yeah. Um, that, uh, if you had a, 
if you had a fairly knowledgeable fan and you gave him or her a full season uh, in which to manage games, maybe by the end of that season, that person would be as adept at, you know, making the, the standard bullpen changes and pinch hitting moves and all of those things as a regular manager but would be. But if it's always your first game, uh, then I think a lot of people would be overwhelmed by that. The game would move yeah. more quickly for them than it does on TV. They would not be prepared. You know, the, the armchair managers who are sitting at home watching on TV and saying he should have put this reliever in would not have that reliever warmed up at the appropriate time. Uh, That's true. The warming up at the appropriate timing, that actually would probably be the bit, the most difficult thing is yeah. anticipating and having a reliever warm. That's a good point. I'm of three minds here. One is, minds. I know, I know. Mm-hmm. This is how hard it is to manage. I can't even manage a simple <laughs> fake question. Mm-hmm. Um, one, he would have a bench coach and a pitching coach. So it's not like True. this person would have would just be left alone totally, right? Mm-hmm. And so this person could be prodded, could seek counsel, yes, um, and could be reminded of things. So, yes. so that would uh, that would probably avoid some, uh, again, assuming good faith. Uh, that would assume sort of some of the disastrous scenarios you might imagine. Two, however, I am now thinking about a lot of people I know who go, you know, who are you know, consider themselves knowledgeable baseball fans and, and watch games and um yet i consider their opinions about baseball to be ghastly and <laughs> their knowledge to be uh uh you know f- relatively talk radio level uh-huh. and um i do think that and those people are good people and i like them and they enjoy the game and they add a lot to my experience however i can imagine some crazy opinions being put in play because mm-hmm. that's what it is more than anything it's they have crazy opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, and But my, on the third hand, your, uh, or my, of my third mind, your manager's uh, differential, the three-game gap between best and worst, I think maybe suggests it should be four or should be something that, well, less. Well, three games was, uh, that was the difference differential between average and perfect, oh, not best and worst. Oh, okay. Well then, never mind. Four seems a little low. However, I would say that um, that the, those three games worth of wins are um, once you get past those three games, I would think. What am I trying to say? There are probably three games worth of different difficult decisions mm-hmm. to be made in the course of a season. Maybe there are six six games worth of difficult decisions to be made, but then. It's not like it's not linear. After you get through those difficult decisions, it becomes exceptionally easy. I would think. I mean, mm. it's not like 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 you know like every fan knows who you know who the who's better, Troy Tulowitzki or Jordan Pacheco. So it's not like you're gonna like get down to the level where people are putting Jordan Pacheco in instead of Troy Tulowitzki, right? Right. And so I don't know like the difference between. I don't know. I'm just going to say, I feel like I've made my point. <laughs> I feel like I should rephrase that. I feel like I'm not going to make my point no matter how long I talk. That's what um, I meant to say. I feel like I have demonstrated my inability to make this point. Okay. Well, I think it's a, I think it's a significant difference. I think if the, if it's an 81 win team with an average man, major league manager, then I think with the, uh, with the different manager every day, uh, yes, I think it's a uh, 
I think it's a 72 win team. I'm totally fine with that. I could go as low as 66, actually. Mm-hmm. I could I could imagine it getting really ugly. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, or not. I could totally imagine 70, <laughs> 70, 76, too. I'm not totally convinced about yeah, this. Yes, I could, too. Um, okay, uh, this one... Let's see. This this will probably be quick. Uh, this one's from Matt. In light of the recent Cubs podcast, hypothetically, if you were Theo Epstein, would you seriously consider making a Javier Baez-led package uh, in an attempt to acquire Giancarlo Stanton and sign him long-term, especially considering we reasonably expect Starlin Castro to rebound to a roughly three-win level and that he's under contract until t- 2020 when he'll be only 30 years old. Other than the Red Sox, the Cubs are only uh, are one of the few teams that have the prospects to acquire Stanton and money to extend him, especially consider that the Cubs have depth in the left side of the infield and Baez is still risky. With plate discipline concerns, he could be Pedro Alvarez 2.0 for all we know. Um, I would say that uh, that there is a way that that trade might make sense, but that I probably wouldn't make that trade um, given that if I'm Theo Epstein, I would expect to get my right fielder of the future out of either Solaire or Bryant, who might end up in right field. Um, and given that, and given the imba- imbalance between uh, positional talent and pitching talent in their system, I would hold on to Baez. Uh, and if I were to trade him, it would probably be for a, a pitching-based package. Yeah, I feel like the I feel I feel like the outfield is not where the Cubs need the most help in 2016. I also don't think that we should assume that Starlin Castro is necessarily a shortstop uh-huh. forever or in 2016. I don't think that I would rule out trading Starlin Castro either. Uh, and I also will say though, in general, I have no idea how to value prospects versus players in these trades like i i mean i do i know how to do it but i i feel like it's so hard to know how teams um prioritize their you know what they need given their situation and the it's very inconsistent you know we don't know how they evaluate these prospects we don't know how they view their the the true value of each player and so when you start making fake trades and it becomes prospect for player or prospects for player. Mm-hmm. I just never know what's too much. I, I don't think anybody does. It, like you sort of, when a trade happens, you sort of know it when you see it somewhat. Mm-hmm. But it's really hard to know what a team would trade for what. Yeah, I you think know? it's it's probably it's probably easy to to overestimate the uncertainty with a guy like Baez, who is pretty close to. To major league ready, who's who's been in Double A, uh, who's a position player, who is rated by everyone who rates prospects as as one of the top couple guys. Um, I think the fact that he is a prospect and that we haven't seen him in the majors makes it easy to say, well, who knows what could happen? He's a prospect. Prospects bust, but he's he's close. Um, so there's yeah. there's yeah. risk there. I mean, even. Yeah, Pedro Alvarez 2.0 is not the worst thing in the world. I mean, if he's a if he's a shortstop and can hit like Pedro Alvarez, that's pretty good. So it's uh, not so much the uncertainty of the prospect. I feel I actually feel like I like it's it's pretty easy to to estimate what a prospect's 
um, you know, mean production is going to be just mm-hmm. based on where he's ranked and that and how old he is. Yeah, it's more it's more doing the you know the six years versus three and the you know like do you discount the wins in year six compared to year one? You probably should because a win today is probably worth more than a win in six years when you don't know your situation. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I just find it like when I did that thing on fake John Carlos Stanton trades, trade rumors or like trade proposals like a year ago, I, when it, when, when it was like, uh, when I started trying to do ones that were like for prospects, I just gave up. And I, I think I just put like trade him for prospects <laughs> and like let the teams figure out what the appropriate number of prospects or the appropriate level of prospects is. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. It's hard. Anytime you have like a one year of, of, club control for five years of club control it's very difficult to mm-hmm. do i mean you know yeah that's mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. um like okay. nobody will ever be able nobody will ever be able to decode the adrian gonzalez trade from <laughs> from boston to the dodgers no like uh-huh. it's just it's it's so complicated to have all those salaries and all those different years of service time and and you don't even know which dollars the dodgers are just you know taking on because they have to and which ones they're happy to pay the guy and then the prospects involved i mean it just gets the 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 service time things make these trades very complicated and very hard to to anticipate Mm -hmm. they're they're sort of they're not difficult to judge after the fact but they're extremely difficult to anticipate yes that's what i mean yeah um okay one one i wanted to answer uh from matt who asked, do you think we will ever see cyber spying in baseball? Uh, with cyber spying being a popular topic and with baseball becoming more data-driven, I feel that it is inevitable that a team would attempt to steal or damage the data of another team. Do you see an age of high-tech hijinks in baseball's future, and what form would it take? Oh, so like if a team were able to sabotage the other team's uh, track man, for instance? Uh, yeah, it could be that, or it could be you know you're able to to access another team's internal system somehow uh Mm -hmm. gain access to their server read their scouting reports uh you know look at their their proprietary projections all of those things or or wipe them out steal them and then delete them or just monitor them um i that's that's interesting uh i wonder if the incentive is great enough um, if you were caught doing that, the, the the penalties would be pretty severe. So the question is, uh, how much, I guess, how much variation in knowledge, what the knowledge gap is between the, the smartest team and the least smart team, um, would it be worth the risk for the, the information gleaned? Because if you're just stealing one team's information uh, and one team's evaluations and, and scouting reports, I guess you're you're sort of doubling your knowledge in a way, um, which would be valuable. Uh, so, I mean, there's I, you could kind of uh, imagine it happening. It's interesting to think about. I don't know, uh, practically speaking, how how likely that is. Um, I don't think, I I don't think clubs would generally be that interested in, like uh, they might, it it might, it would be fun to steal another team's information. But my suspicion is that if, if they, 
you know, if they did manage to get some club's information and it clashed with what they already had believed or what they had already found or scouted, I think they would just go with their own. My, my, my guess, like, I think that teams are much more concerned about keeping their own secrets than about actually getting anybody else's. I think that there's like a sort of a paranoia that, um, that a lot of clubs have about protecting their mm-hmm. information, but I just don't get the sense that any of them care that much <laughs> about mm-hmm. what other people are doing. Like there's a little bit of curiosity there, but, um, but not, I don't know. The clubs seem to clubs, anyone I've ever talked to has felt pretty confident that they're, you know, that they're doing it right. Uh-huh. Does it surprise you that we never see a, a disgruntled uh, employee or a disgruntled former employee just leak a whole bunch of sensitive stuff? Just just put a team's scouting reports out there. Just just well, leak, a, leak well, a season's uh, worth to, of, of NFX data or something. Yeah. Uh, not I, I guess not really because who want I mean every, they nobody's obligation is to us it's to staying in the game and having a job and mm-hmm. so you gotta you gotta be part of the club you gotta act you gotta act like everybody in the club that's that's how you stay in the game you act like everybody else mm-hmm. um so it would look really bad if anybody did that but they do i mean if a it would have to one, be someone who's just fed up with working in baseball and doesn't want to do it anymore uh yeah and even then like do those guys really exist uh i don't know and of course there are you really don't like you don't see you don't generally see people in baseball burning bridges at all like in any way the only time you do is when it's a crazy person like jose canseco or Uh or pete rose but um you there's you just don't see people going off you know doing crazy things in any fashion however as far as like as far as sort of stealing stuff or I, i don't stealing's maybe not the right word but um yeah, when a team hires another team's double A coach, the other team's double A coach brings all the paperwork and immediately shares it with mm-hmm. the club. So they are all doing that. Everybody is bringing their old paperwork to mm-hmm. their new job. Yeah, true. Um, okay. Uh, all right. Lighten- Derek Jeter. <laughs> what about Derek Jeter? We're going to hear about Derek Jeter now. Oh, well, yeah. Um all right, a quick answer. Andrew wanted to know why quarterbacks don't blow out their elbows. Um, it's a different throwing motion, right? Yeah, I think it's... Uh, I, I did find a study that said they're, like, between 94, 1994 and 2008, there were, like, 10 UCL injuries in quarterbacks, uh, and most of them were able to be treated without surgery. Like, nine of nine of the people returned without ever having an operation. I think, yeah, I think it's a, a combination of things. I think it's the different... Throwing motion, I think, I mean, quarterbacks tend to, to hurt their shoulders more so than their elbows. Um, I think it probably has to do with the, the different size and weight of the ball. You're with a football, which is bigger and heavier. You're not accelerating and decelerating and stressing your arm quite as much. Uh, you're also just not making nearly as many throws, I would think. Um, there are only, you know, 16 games or maybe 20 if you're counting preseason games and, and some playoff games. And the average quarterback makes like 30 passes in a game, something like that. And not even they're throwing constantly though, right? Don't they throw every day? Yeah, they throw between games. Um, but I, you don't have the concentration of throws, I don't think. And the, the max effort nature of it, um, so I don't know whether it's more the the repetition or the the mechanics, but uh, both both play a role. 
Okay, so uh, send us emails for next week's show at podcast.baseballperspectus.com. Please join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. And please rate and review us uh, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, So now you will hear me talking to Ricky Smith about his uh, close encounter with Derek Jeter story, which I enjoyed very much. And we hope that you have a wonderful weekend, and we'll be back with new show on Monday. So on Wednesday, Derek Jeter announced his retirement, and my Twitter timeline was quickly filled with tributes to his his greatness, his legacy, his character. Uh, there was only one man with the bravery to swim against that tide and insist that that Jeter's career was not something to celebrate. Uh, And that man was Ricky Smith, a comedian and a writer for Adult Swim's Black Dynamite. And he joins me now. Hey, Ricky. How's it going? Do you guys have any applause noise or anything like that? (laughs) Uh, Maybe we can add some. If if you deserve it, we'll see. Definitely want some of that. Let me me back you up. I I actually am more excited that he's retiring because it it gives a a level playing field for the normal man to have, (laughs) not have what happened when we're about to discuss. So I'm actually, it's bittersweet. Bittersweet. That's a good point. Okay, so so tell us. Uh, so what is your grudge against Derek Jeter? 2003, uh, many many moons ago, uh, I, I met a young lady. This is before the catfish and the, you know, you can do background checks per se on people. But I, I met a young lady on MySpace, if you will. Uh-huh. And uh, I never done anything like this before. But I'm, I was in Cleveland, Ohio at the time, and she was actually in New York City. And uh, we've been communicating back and forth, and I'm a, I'm a big baseball fan. Um, and, and it just so happened that the Cleveland Indians were playing a series against a uh, four-game series against the uh, Yankees. And mm-hmm. um, you know, like anybody would, I'm, I'm 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 a young guy, not much money, but I have a corporate account company at the time. So you know, I make my way, I get a flight, and I get the hotel. Not presuming anything, but you know, just. Excited. Me and this girl are going back and forth, I think, for like six or seven months at this time. Wow. Okay. So you uh, yeah, put, so put it, some it work was, in. Yeah, oh, yeah. It was, it was a lot of work. I mean, it was it was like, you know, am I a fool? Am I stupid? You know, the first phone call, you don't know, you know, pressure and this and that. So I get to New York. You know, she picks me up from the airport, and uh, she was living at home with her parents at the time. I think she was in grad school. Not exactly sure, but um, she picks me up. You know, we go to dinner. We actually go Bahama Breeze. Or uh, a chain restaurant to that to that magnitude, uh, you know, the type of place where uh, you know they're, they're wearing flair, if you will, on their uh, <laughs> on their on their uniforms. Mm-hmm. And uh, things are going well, good time. I think we even held hands. Maybe maybe did a uh, you know the awkward kiss where you just get out of the way. And uh, she tells me that we should go to the nightclub. You know, so and so DJs there. She knows some people there, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. So, you know, being the tool or being the guy that I am at the time, I'm going, all right, sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, we get to this club, and, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know I've am i been places. I went to college in Atlanta, things that sort, but New York is still a you know, different beast. So I get there, and, and, and uh, some of the Yankees players are there, and, uh, you know, I'm excited because I actually see Derek Jeter. So I was like, wow. You know, I'm actually more excited to see him than I think she is. I don't think she knows who he is at the time. And this is this is prime Derek Jeter at the time. This is, oh, this, this yeah, is this age is, 29. Oh yeah. Okay. yeah, he could do no wrong. This is before the hair started thinning. Right, know. right, right. The yeah, full set of hair. Uh, uh-huh. So I'm excited. I'm like, you know, there's 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 Jeter. And I, you know, tell him who he is and blah, blah blah. And he comes over and, you know, I'm excited. So just as a gentleman, I introduce him to her and you know, they start talking. And we're all talking in the group. 
And uh, I think either I went to the bathroom or somehow, I, which was my big mistake looking back, <laughs> I left to go to the restroom or something I had agreed, and I leave them, and I come back, and, and uh, you know, I see them leaving. Cause it's, the, it's the summer, so they don't have to put in coats. And I don't know if they're going to smoke, but in my head, I'm you know, this can't happen because, you know, Derek Jeter's a man, and this girl, you know, likes me or, or is in love with me right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and... Uh, 10, 15 minutes go by, and I realize they, they, they're they not back. It's, uh, you know, you, you don't want to believe it's like one of those, like, six cents at the end of the movie, or, uh, you know, where you're like, wait, like, wait, did that just, you're replaying it, and you, you're kind of looking left, looking right. And this is before the days of smartphones. Mm-hmm. So there's no way to do the fake texting. I can't act like I'm, you know, in my phone. It's just me, and, and, and literally I feel like 4,000, 100 people, million people are staring at me. They just saw what happened. And, uh, you know, I couldn't be mad per se at her because if I was a woman, I probably would have left with Derek Jeter. <laughs> I couldn't be mad at him because she was kind of a hot chick. Mm-hmm. So I can only be mad at myself. I'm just sitting there and I'm, you know, acting like I'm enjoying myself and that I really wanted to stay and that, you know, I'm enjoying this club when I'm really not. And, and uh, how long did, with, did you sit there before you accepted what had happened? It was probably the longest five minutes of my life. I mean, felt like it was like hours but here's the here's the thing that, that i didn't even tweet about is that i actually was jealous because i would have loved to gone and not you know in a, in a, in a gay way but i would have loved, loved to go back to his house like i wanted to hang out with Derek Jeter. like i want the trophies or whatever he had to like show they could have hooked up which i realized after so that five minutes of me waiting i realized after about four minutes and you know 50 minutes and two 50 seconds into it she's my ride i actually have never been to new york before <laughs> so I'm like, not only did he steal my girl, he also stole my ride. Which to the point where I'm like, they could have just dropped me off back in my hotel. Like this is this is just bad. Like this is not going well. And at that moment of frantic, I see the cocktail waitress. This is like really before bottle service, but I see a cocktail waitress come over and go, uh, you know, they do that whisper where they go, you know, sir, mind you in a loud club. Uh, I'm sorry, your card is declined. Do you have another one? <laughs> And at that point, everyone's been there. I don't care whether it's college. You've been there. You go, you do that whole, you know, fake pat down where you go, oh, let me, um, oh, that's weird. I don't, it, yeah, it has been acting funny. No wonder it hasn't. Uh, let me, let me, let me see another card. Mind you, I had a, this is, I had a card limit on it. So I could only spend X amount of dollars and I reached that with a bottle of champagne that I thought we were going to split. So now, just to recap, Jeter takes my girl. I don't know ride home and now my card is declined. So it's just all bad. It went from, you know, hour before we're, 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 we're lovey-dovey at the Ruby Tuesdays or, or Shoney's or wherever we are. And now it's just like I'm stuck in New York City. I feel like the world's looking at me, and I have like $4.72 in my name. You'd think the least he could have done is pick up the check because you figure that she probably got the gift basket the next day. Uh, exactly, which, which which she could have even split with me. Like, sure. I, I mean, so I, yeah, he, he took the girl... And he fed her. Like, he didn't even have to take her to dinner. Like, I fed him for her. I did, I did all the hard work. I even got her a little tipsy. It's it like, you know, National Geographic, the, 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 the hyena or whatever, comes in and just swoops out the food after, you know, lying did all the work. So I like to think that I was his wingman for that night, and I didn't even get a thank you. So you didn't actually see the, the pickup take place, so to speak. It was sort of, I, I mean, you're, you're a baseball fan. You, you probably know the, the famous fielding plays in, in Jeter's career when he, he comes out of nowhere and he 
suddenly he's diving into the stands or he's flipping a ball where he's completely out of position. And, and then after the fact, you realize, oh, Derek Jeter was there. So that must have been... It's like the WWF or WWE where the guy comes in and he hits the guy and the guy turns around and he, he literally doesn't know what happened. And, and I, it was like I got blindsided. Like I said, it would have been okay if I got, got a ride home. I'm, I was going to give him, looking back, he had a lot of outs. He could have split the tab, like you said. He could have given me a ride home. You know, he could even let me go to his house and maybe stay in the guest room. You know, or, or, or at least let me get, you know, uh, part of the, 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 the next morning bag. I could have got a bat or a jersey or at least something commemorating, you know, the, the experience. All I got was repressed memories until I see the retirement tweets. <laughs> and, and he's trending, and then it just it just flows like oh, it yeah, was like diarrhea. It flows yeah. like diarrhea. Yeah, we could we could feel the pain as you tweeted the story. So did you just uh, did you just put your tail between your legs and and go back home? Did you hang around town for a while? Well, I, I actually I actually had to take the train. Uh, I took a bus to the train, which you don't know how humble you are leaving a club dressed up to try to figure out where you're going. Um, and actually, he, because my car was over, I gave him as much as I had in the car, actually only could stay in my hotel one more day. And uh, so I actually looked up some relatives, and this is like old school. Looked up some relatives, had to act like I actually was in town to visit them in New York. <laughs> and uh, I think I ended up hanging out with my grandmother's sister, which would be my great aunt. Her neighbor uh, was like 28 or 29, this, like, woman who smelled like mothballs, and it was all bad, but we ended up sightseeing, like, and it wasn't, like, good sightseeing. It was like, oh, this is the first trolley that ever was, you know, produced. And I was like, oh, this is, this is why I came to New York. I'm so excited about this. So he actually, it's funny, because I actually didn't watch baseball for two years, and I actually didn't go to New York for another three or four years because of that whole experience. So <laughs> It was just too painful. Oh, it still hurts. Like even now, I don't know if you can hear, but it 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 it, it it's not it's it hurts. It hurts. It hurts. But, but you know what's funny? We've all been there. Whether it's been Derek Jeter, whether it's been the college roommate, whether it's been the best friend, I think we've all experienced that moment where it's just like, okay, all right, you you don't want to believe it. And even you know you're waiting, you're looking at your phone. Maybe she'll call tomorrow. Maybe you know maybe somebody got sick in her family. But no, no, I, it it uh, it was I was I was jeetered, if you will. Has this made you more wary of taking dates out, just just fearing that Derek Jeter might be wherever you are? Yeah, well, I actually look at the schedule. I actually know the Yankees schedule. I actually <laughs> lived in San Diego, in L.A. Uh, prior, I mean, post that, and I actually this farewell tour. I'm I'm staying I'm staying far away. Maybe the last day, the last city, you know, I'll I'll, I'll show up. But no, I'm, I'm not even taking my mom or even you know remotely anywhere around anywhere in a hundred mile radius of. Derek Jeter. <laughs> and and after this happened, did you did you make any attempt to reconnect with your date, or was that just that was it? You know what I, I like to say, and I, I said it to my friends that I did not call her, but um, she actually didn't return my my call. Uh-huh. She uh-huh. kind of stopped it on her end. But uh, I like to think that uh, they're married and uh, having kids, which I know is not true. But I would like to think down the road that's going to happen. Yeah, well, it could happen. In in his retirement statement yesterday, he said something about how he wants to devote himself to starting a family. Uh, so maybe he will. Maybe he'll call her up. Uh, yeah, that's 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 yeah. I mean, maybe I will too. <laughs> maybe, or maybe I'll bring it to the club. Maybe I'll bring it to the club, and uh, you know, maybe that they, that they can rekindle because of me. And this time I learned. I'll just 
you know, make sure I pay with cash beforehand on my on my tab. Because you're right. Once you're once you're 40 and a former Yankees legend uh, and a, a former earner of 250 million dollars, you're you're not you don't quite have the same club status that you once did. Uh, so he might have a, a tougher time. Uh, well, as as much as I want to agree with you, it's, it's still. I mean, there's the thing that makes somebody cool. Derek Jeter's that guy. Even when you want to hate him, you can't. <laughs> you know, even when you want to dislike, as much as I want to dislike him, he's still Derek Jeter. Like, and it doesn't even make worse that you know A Rod's on this team. So you know, you really have a clear cut. You love everything about Jeter, and everything that's you know wrong. You go to A Rod. So even even as much as I want to like be mad, like I said, I can only be mad at myself. I can only be upset with with me bringing sand to the beach and, and, and knowing that it was like the best beach of all time. The sand didn't want to leave with me. The sand was like, I'm happy here. So I, you know, I picked up and walked away sandless. Right. You, you hear that acceptance a lot from his opponents who've been beaten by him on the field. Uh, you just kind of have to tip your cap and, and accept that you were beaten by the best. And I, I guess that's the, that's the feeling that you have here. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say that if, if it was anybody to take my girl, I would, I would, I would be glad of this. I'm actually proud. Not that you, not that you put it that way. That uh, I would have no other person I would want to take my girl. <laughs> and and you can't be the only person who has had this experience over the years. Have you? Man, have, my have timeline, you... <laughs> my timeline, in the last twenty four hours has exploded with so many uh, either guys like hang in there. My buddy happened in X Y Z city, and 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 for the record, the whole story is not to you know put them on blast or to, or to, or to, you know locker room talk, mm-hmm. but. It was just something that was kind of funny, but I mean, it's been known. I mean, he's a ladies man. Even, you know, ESPN they just tweeted out his his best, his nine best, uh, you know, scores, if you will. So, like I said, I, I feel privileged. I feel blessed. Uh, I would like to say that the woman, you know, made my top. She was in my top three on MySpace, <laughs> and um, you know, and she, I think she's still there. I haven't been on MySpace in years, but I think she still resides there. Have you considered starting a, a support group of some kind for for men who've had this experience? <laughs> you know what? I, I might have to do. I think I think the first step was me telling the story, and now other men out there can know, <laughs> and maybe women can know that they're not alone. So you're right. Maybe this was the beginning of something that that helps, and maybe maybe in this farewell tour, you know, in East City, he'll come speak to the different groups, the sport groups. <laughs> I think that's a good idea because you. You have to accept that it's not your fault. It's not your failing. It's not, not somewhere not you went either. wrong. You were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's it. And, and you learn from that. You learn from that and you move on. And, and hopefully, you know, the people didn't slide you down, you know, the, the hardcore. I didn't go to, you know, hard drugs. Uh, I didn't, you know, drink. I didn't do things like that. But maybe some people did. And maybe they need a hug. Or maybe they need somebody else, you know. Well, I uh, I applaud you for for getting over this setback in your dating life, uh, and for, for thank you for sharing your story with us. Uh, and no, thank you, thank you. And like I said, I, hopefully you know there's other people out there that can can, can learn from this. If it's not Jeter, you know maybe it's uh, you know I don't know Matt uh, 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 Kemp. Matt Kemp, I, I think he's a guy in LA right now. So you know maybe just just to learn from my experience, the younger generation, you know the the new up and coming baseball players, just. Be careful. Baseball players any time three, four nights, you know? Not like a you know, basketball player in and out. Baseball they they got a little time to, to romance your girl a little bit, so <laughs> um and you you've started a, a movement called Rake. Uh, it's actually you... indirectly. I, I I'm not realizing this until right now, but I started this movement called Rana Extra Kindness Everywhere, which is Rake. Uh on Twitter is, is Rake Now, R 
R-A-K-E-N-O-W. And it's just doing kindness for somebody else. It's like paying it forward movement. But it's using a hashtag, R-A-K-E, just doing something for somebody else. But indirectly, I, I, somebody actually tweeted me yesterday that me giving my girl the Jeter might have been the first random act of kindness everywhere I performed. <laughs> that is a good That is a good point. So you're... <laughs> Uh, so you you after after shows or when you're in a certain city you just go out and and do a, an act of kindness for someone. Yes, it could be not always charity. It could be you know handing out blankets to homeless people randomly. It could be buying Starbucks. Uh, last week I actually went to a Target in Vegas and, and and found two homeless people and gave them complete makeovers with clothes, toiletries, underwear, and then, and then took them to a barber. So it's just doing something for somebody else. Whole pay it forward movement, but it's it's rape, but it's it's kind of in your face. So before it's anonymous, so I might buy ten sandwiches for somebody. Somebody goes, you know what? I'm gonna buy twenty sandwiches. So it's just doing a pay it forward movement, but it ended up in a bigger thing. Mental Magazine picked it up. Uh, CNN is starting to do coverage and things like that. So it's, it's kind of a fun thing. I stress the random and random act of kindness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm actually looking this weekend to get a horse and ride around a couple of cities and, and do kindness on the horse. So still <laughs> fun. I'm, it's, it's still not holier than thou. It's saying just do something for somebody else. And is there a website where people can go to, to find yeah, out more about that? dot org. And, uh, yeah, um, that's what it is. Moment we do book drives. We do plank drive. We're actually doing donations or, um, for other people who have been affected by things, you know, outfitting, uh, you know, hospitals and things of that sort. So, yeah, there, there it is. One of the actors from Moneyball, Stephen Bishop, is a big fan of, he played David Justice and Moneyball, is a big Rick supporter. We actually went to a couple children hospitals in uh, in L.A. and, and read and hung out with the kids. So right. there's a baseball connection there. He was upset that he had to, to pay for soft drinks in the A's clubhouse, as I recall, in that movie. Uh, so- yes, he was. Yes, yes, yes. People can follow uh, Ricky at Riconia, R-I-C-K-O-N-I-A. Uh, and does Black Dynamite coming back for a second season? Yeah, we're here. I'm, I'm a writer in the second season. We're back uh, this summer. It actually takes about, people don't know, it takes about 16 to 18 months to do a season. So we actually worked on this season last uh, February, and it should be out this summer. Pretty funny stuff. Um, the people who did Boondocks kind of, some people branched off and doing Black Dynamite. So. Very excited for you guys to see. We have some uh, very interesting uh, episodes that uh, the 70s black exploitation kind of cartoon, but it's pretty funny, pretty funny stuff. Cool. All right. So people can. I got found on Twitter. So that shows you the type of uh, thing that social media, like like yourself, I was reaching out. The social media is awesome. And people can find that on Adult Swim. I wanted to bring out Derek Jeter and your date from backstage to, <laughs> to surprise you, but I I couldn't make it. It didn't come together in time. He's he's busy yeah, with his yeah. retirement and everything. I don't, I don't I don't think I'm ready. I, I talked a big game, but I don't think I'm ready just yet for that. For that, <laughs> that, for that. All right. Uh, thanks for joining us, Ricky. No, thank you so much for having me. You have a good one.